Hey, it's Scott Jennings. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country. This week, we have an important conversation with Kentucky's 1st District Congressman Jamie Comer. You may have seen him on television lately. He's all over it because he is going to be the next chairman of the Oversight Committee in the House of Representatives, where Republicans will have a narrow majority in the next Congress. Jamie Comer, uh, a lifelong Kentuckian from Monroe County. He was first elected to Congress in 2016 to represent the 1st District. That's changed to some degree now. His district goes all the way from Paducah across Kentucky and even stretches into central Kentucky and now encompasses Frankfort. He went to Western Kentucky University to study agriculture. He was in the State House. He was State Agriculture Commissioner. He had a very narrow loss in the 2015 Republican primary for governor. Uh, That was the primary that saw Matt Bevin uh, win by 83 votes. And it wasn't clear where Jamie Comer was headed after that, but he bounced right back, got elected to Congress, and he is now one of the most important Republicans in the country. We cover the waterfront today. We're going to talk about the investigations that House Republicans are going to engage in here of the Biden administration, what's going on with Twitter and Elon Musk. We've got our famous lightning round. We've got our panel of Joe Arnold, Sean Southern, and Jared Crawford. You're on Flyover Country, the conversation this week with U.S. Congressman Jamie Comer. Here we go. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Hey, thanks for joining us on Flyover Country. Big conversation this week with one of the most important Republicans in the United States. He happens to represent Kentucky's first congressional district, Jamie Comer from Monroe County. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, I want to jump right in today because uh, even though the Republicans, congressmen, have won the majority, we don't yet know fully what's going to happen at the top of the U.S. House. We know Pelosi's going out, but Kevin McCarthy hasn't quite nailed down the speakership yet. So simple question. Will Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans, be the next Speaker of the House? I think so. And he deserves to be. I'm strongly supporting Kevin. We had an election in the conference. He got over 80 percent of the vote. So hopefully everyone will come together on January 3rd and elect Kevin Speaker. Why do you think it is that there are some members of the conference that don't seem to understand the need for team unity? I mean, I, I mean, to me, uh, this is where uh, much to the chagrin of conservatives like uh, the people on this pod today uh, this is where Pelosi scored. She kept her people together. And Republicans, it seems to me, with a narrow majority, are going to have to do the same thing in order to stop Joe Biden and not empower these Democrats. I assume you see it that way. I see it that way. Unfortunately, Republicans are more strong-willed in Congress than Democrats. Democrats all have opinions, but at the end of the day, they can be whipped together by Pelosi's machine, and they do exactly what they're told. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, are a little harder to, to control. Uh, that's good and bad. Right now, it's bad. Uh, I hope that after this speaker election is resolved that we don't have the same types of issues getting to 218 because I'm pretty confident we're not going to be able to depend on Democrats in Congress to uh, garner very many votes in our conservative legislation. All right. Jamie Comer there on the Flower Country podcast predicting that Kevin McCarthy will be the next Speaker of the House. Second big issue going on today. It's been all over the news this weekend. Twitter and the files that are coming out uh, from Elon Musk now, who's turned them over to some journalists and uh, sort of confirming what I think we all sort of knew, uh, which is that there were people inside of Twitter colluding with the Democrats to suppress, you know, important information in the 2020 election. Congressman Comer, as the 
next chairman of the Oversight Committee. I assume this is going to be uh, moving up uh, to the top of your list as, of things to look into, yes? Yes. Obviously, we're focused on the Biden influence peddling investigation. This is a major part of it because what you've seen thus far from what Elon Musk has released is the Democrat National Committee and the Biden campaign colluding with big tech to censor the laptop story. At that time that they were censoring it, they were saying this is Russian disinformation. This isn't true. Now we know it was 100 percent true. Uh, Once that became uh, evident that it was true, then you had people in the White House trying to say, well, the copy that Comer has, the Oversight Committee, it's been compromised. There was a folder added. Anything that would implicate Joe Biden was added. What they didn't know is CBS was working on a forensic audit at the time, and CBS has come out and verified that the copy that we have is, in fact, 100% authentic and hasn't been tampered with. So the question is, why are the Democrats so afraid of the laptop? Now you're seeing, Scott, they're trying to spin and say, well, they didn't want pictures of of Hunter Biden smoking a crack pipe or nude pictures of Hunter Biden. We don't care about that. What we care about is the influence peddling and how involved Joe Biden was. And did Joe Biden, in fact, benefit directly from this influence peddling? And as a result, is Joe Biden compromised because of all the millions of dollars his family took in from our adversaries, mainly in China and Russia? I've heard you say before, uh, Congressman, that this really isn't an investigation of Hunter Biden, that it is an investigation of Joe Biden, who is the sitting president of the United States. That's how the Republicans see it, yes? It is how the Republicans see it. It's an investigation of Joe Biden. The only reason Hunter Biden is relevant is he has a laptop that has all of their PowerPoints, all of their emails, all of their text messages, even voicemails that confirm that uh, Joe Biden was, in fact, uh, involved directly in a lot of this influence peddling. And this is a concern. This is a national security risk. I don't think we've ever had a president who is being investigated because his immediate family members have taken anything, much less millions of dollars, from adversaries in China and Russia. You know, uh, a Democrat or media, uh, mainstream media outlet might say, well, what about Jared Kushner or the Trumps? You know, there were things that uh, that they did that I think were were you know, tested the boundaries. But at the end of the day, they were in business. I know what their business was. They, you know, they were in the real estate business. They had golf courses. They had apartment buildings. They had hotels, right? What is the Biden family business? Right. They don't manufacture anything. They're not licensed to sell anything. They don't own any real estate. Their business was influence peddling. And that's wrong. And it could lead to this White House being compromised. Let me uh, uh, introduce our panel. Sean Southern is here. Joe Arnold is here. Jared Crawford is here. Let me back up uh, before I bring the guys in real quick on the Twitter issue. Do you anticipate calling before the committee Elon Musk to talk about what he's found since he took over the platform? And also on this issue you raised on the Twitter story, uh, and and I think this also has to do with the uh, the Hunter Biden story as well you were just discussing. You had all these people that were claiming it was Russian disinformation. Uh, you had Joe Biden himself claiming that. You had his spokespeople mm-hmm. claiming that. There were like 50 people who are part of the national security establishment or whatever that were claiming that. Do you anticipate calling them as well to answer for why they told the American people that this was Russian Mm -hmm. disinformation when we all know that Joe Biden knew the truth, that, in fact, he had communicated with Hunter Biden, that the laptop was 
real, and he knew. He knew what his son was mm-hmm. into. Do you think you'll bring those people to the committee? I'm very concerned about what those people did and why they did it. My investigations focus squarely on Joe Biden. Now, the Judiciary Committee yeah. is focused on a lot of wrongdoing within the FBI and DOJ. So I anticipate those 51 former intelligence officials who signed the letter, I anticipate them being interviewed by the Judiciary Committee. I anticipate the FBI being interviewed and possibly deposed by the Judiciary Committee with respect to what they did uh, with with the laptop. Now, from Elon Musk, you know, as long as he keeps producing information, then I think uh, we're in pretty good shape. I would love for Elon Musk to come before the committee. Uh, he will be welcome in front of our committee. But, you know, what I remind people is what he released this weekend, that was pre-Biden administration. That was Biden campaign. We haven't even gotten to the last two years of the Biden administration. And I'm pretty confident there's a lot of damaging information from uh, from this White House dealing with who to ban from Twitter and which stories to suppress from Twitter. So, you know, this is this story is just beginning, Scott, and it's only going to get better. And as of now, Elon Musk is doing the country a great favor. That's Congressman Jamie Comer. You're on the Flyover Country podcast. Panelist Sean Southern, what do you have? Well, Congressman One, thanks for being with us. I actually have a a follow-up question to that exact issue, is that we know that Jen Psaki, whenever she was speaking from the the podium uh, during White House press conferences, spoke often about referring things that the Biden administration was concerned about uh, to Twitter's uh, team for and flagging it for being misinformation. Have you uh, discovered anything so far that that concerns you about the first two years of the Biden administration that would lead you to think that there was uh, real real abuse problems there with the White House trying to steer the conversation on Twitter to a different direction? We have heard a lot. We've spoken to many people who would confirm that the White House was very involved in communicating with Twitter on banning conservatives and, and banning speech, which you know should never be a problem. We should never have a presidential administration trying to ban speech, especially conservative speech. But what we need, you know, what I've always said on my committee, unlike Adam Schiff in his investigation, we're going to have evidence. So right now, Elon Musk has the evidence, and I'm pretty confident that he's going to release that evidence to the American people. So uh, I suspect that was happening, but hopefully Elon Musk will be providing evidence very soon. Joe Arnold. Congressman, good to see you again. Good to hear your voice. Uh, this has been a longstanding kind of debate. I have had like this internal struggle about the social media you know, internet sites in the first place. In other words, are these private companies? At what point do they have such mass uh, aggregation or, or ad- adoption that they become under the auspices of the government or of your oversight committee? Great question. They are a private company. And I never was on the bandwagon of, you know, passing legislation to regulate big tech. I've always been a free market guy. My problem with what has happened with the Hunter Biden laptop story in Twitter is the fact that I believe that the White House and the Biden campaign was working with the FBI. You know, Musk hasn't gotten into the FBI's involvement yet. Uh, obviously, we've heard from Zuckerberg that the FBI was winking and nodding that uh, you're fixing to get a big story pertaining to the president's son. And it look, sure looks like Russian disinformation. They chose their words carefully. And said, you know, you know, they didn't come out and say it was Russian disinformation, but they put the fear of God 
in Zuckerberg, you know, and at that time, you know, the FBI was still fairly respected. So I believe that, uh, you know, what's happening here is we need to know how involved the federal government was in banning this laptop story. Because if if they were going along with those 51 former intelligence officials saying this was Russian disinformation, they have a lot of explaining to do because remember, they had the laptop a year before this story came out. They didn't think that there was a copy of the laptop. They asked the computer repair guy if he made any copies and he said no, which he lied to the FBI, but he's gonna have a whole lot of people supporting him because he did the right thing. He didn't trust the FBI. He did the right thing. He reported uh, wrongdoing, which there's more wrongdoing on that laptop than just the, the influence peddling. But at the, at the end of the day, if the FBI led Twitter to believe that that story was Russian disinformation, then they're going to be in an enormous amount of trouble because there's no question when you look at the pictures, the emails, the text messages, the videos on there, that was Hunter Biden's laptop. You know what is interesting to me about this story? There's a lot of people involved, but at the end of the day, Joe Biden stood on a presidential debate stage and said out loud to the American people, this is all a smear campaign, none of this is real, and he mm-hmm. himself said it was Russian, and he he knew the truth and uh, and lied mm-hmm. to the American people. Jared, what do you have? Yeah, Congressman, again, thank you for, for joining us today. You mentioned um, Elon Musk has, has taken on this kind of crusade to, mm-hmm. to free this information here. I wonder from your perspective if – you know, if, if Elon sort of stops today or, you know, decides to not come out with these things, what can you do? Maybe sort of explain to the people a little bit about being chairman of the Oversight Committee, what that will allow you to do. Because, mm-hmm. look, I think Elon's been a big benefit. And the, the was it Friday night we had the, the Twitter files or uh, Twitter was alive. But if, if that sort of stops, if maybe he gets a little bit scared of, of coming forward, what can you do in your committee? Well, we can certainly subpoena for information. We'll have subpoena power. Uh, I have, as a chairman of the House Oversight Committee, subpoena authority. So this is certainly relevant to the Biden investigation. And I don't think I would have any trouble now that CVS has confirmed the validity mm-hmm. of the laptop. And now that Elon Musk has confirmed with emails proof that the Biden campaign and the Democrat National Committee were trying to suppress this story, that uh, that we would be able to have great success in court uh, getting Twitter to comply with this subpoena. But I see no need to subpoena Twitter as long as Elon Musk is, is releasing this information. All right. Uh, Congressman, it sounds like the investigation of Joe Biden and influence peddling is number one. What would you say is number two on your list of uh, things that the committee is going to be looking into when you take over? Well, we're very concerned about what's going on at the southern border. Uh, Kevin McCarthy led a group to the southern border last week, and he announced that uh, Comer and Jim Jordan would be leading an investigation into Mayorkas. Uh, the reason he chose us, in addition to you know Jim's on the oversight committee uh, with me, is the fact that we've made several trips to the southern border, and we've been in communication with whistleblowers from Border Patrol who have been in meetings with Mayorkas. Mayorkas has essentially been telling the Border Patrol to stand down. He's done everything in his ability to hamper the Border Patrol from doing their job. He's taken them from being the Border Patrol to being a welcoming committee. And now they're having to go, when they detain people, they're having to take them in and process them. 
They're having to change diapers. They're having to do things that do border patrol shouldn't have to do. And when they're doing that, the border's wide open, and that's how the fentanyl is crossing the border. They, the Mexican drug cartel knows when they send a group of their migrants across the border, the border patrol is going to take them and process them and be gone for a few hours, and they're sending their runners across the, the line. It happens every day, every day. 100,000 people have died since Joe Biden's been president of fentanyl overdoses. All of that fentanyl is coming across the border. So this is a huge issue. And then the last thing I'll mention from an investigative standpoint, we're very concerned about uh, COVID, all things COVID, not just the origination of COVID, but also the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars uh, that were wasted in the name of COVID. So all of that's going to be a primary focus of our investigative branch in, a, in the committee. Congressman, I have to ask you, this is, um, and this is a little you know, civics 101, if you, if, but also to hear it in your own words, what is the role of the House Oversight and Reform Committee? Because mm-hmm. we hear about it a lot. I think sometimes yeah. in the, the macro sense, as far as you know, news media, all you hear about is like tit for tat. You hear about right. this accusation versus that accusation. But this mm-hmm. is your job. So explain mm-hmm. to me what and explain to me what you see yourself as your responsibility as chair. In layman terms, oversight committee's primary role is to root out waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement in the federal government. So that's a pretty broad jurisdiction. There's no shortage of waste, fraud, abuse, or mismanagement in this uh, administration right now. But when you look at the COVID money, that predates the Biden administration. That goes back three years. So, you know, there will be things that we look at that happened during the, the end of the Trump administration with respect to, to COVID. But, you know, my biggest challenge is the next chairman of the Oversight Committee is going to be to restore credibility to congressional oversight. And I blame both parties for the public and the media not having a lot of confidence and, and credibility in congressional oversights. I blame Adam Schiff because he went all in on the Steele dossier and Russian collusion. And at the end of the day, that, that was that was never there. There were so many things Adam Schiff could have legitimately attacked Donald Trump on, but he went all in on something that just was not true. And I think as a result of that, the American people have lost confidence in congressional oversight. So we're starting all over. We're going to try to turn over a new leaf. I'm not doing anything from an investigative standpoint without being able to back it up with evidence. To follow up on that question, so once you complete an investigation uh, of Hunter Biden or COVID or whatever, mm-hmm. what what products do you intend to produce? Will it be reports? Will it mm-hmm. be? Do you intend to try to make referrals? Or what what are the right. end, what are the end goals? And do you, and have you put the staff at the committee on a timeline? You'd like to have some of these things done by a, a certain time. Yeah. Well, I, I want to do them quickly. I don't want to box myself in. As you know, Scott, we're going to have a harder time getting information than say the January sixth committee had because they had a Department of Justice that got their back on the subpoenas. I believe the raid of Mar-a-Lago was triggered by the January 6th committee. So they had an FBI that was willing to help them get documents they were trying to to get. So we won't have the the luxury of having the FBI or DOJ. So it's going to probably, unfortunately, take us a little longer mm. to, to get information. But, you know, I foresee at the end of the Biden administration, uh, obviously a, a major, thorough, detailed report. Uh, probably some referrals for for criminal activity uh, but then in the end a legislative fix because Scott when you when you talk about what the Biden family was doing you know, the, I'm not sure it was illegal but it needs to be illegal right because if we don't change the law China has so much money uh, our adversaries have so much money that they're always going to be picking off relatives of uh, of 
high-ranking government officials. We need to know, without a shadow of a doubt, what is legal and what is not legal. Now, I tend to think I can make a strong argument for the influence peddling being illegal. Right. But, you know, at the end of the day, there needs to be no doubt that if you're the immediate family member, you're the brother, you're the you're the son of a president, vice president, member of Congress, cabinet secretary, whatever, you, you can't take this money from these foreign countries. And if you do, for whatever reason, have a business like, say, Jared Kushner, that, that's you know doing business in Saudi Arabia or, or overseas, then we need to significantly increase the transparency and disclosure laws with respect to that. So I think there's going to be a bipartisan legislative fix in the end, because if we don't fix this, this is going to continue to be a problem for every administration in the future. Yeah, it strikes me what you said about the foreign governments trying to, to take people who are vulnerable. You know, in Hunter Biden's case, it was it wasn't just financial. I mean, he was vulnerable in so many parts of his life, oh, obviously yeah. addicted to drugs and just a lot of poor personal judgment. Those are the kinds of right. people who are easy to pick off with money and other other blackmail-type campaigns. Joe? Congressman, uh, I first uh, interviewed you about 10 or 11 years ago, maybe before that when you were in the legislature, but when you were ag commissioner and first elected. I'm bringing this up for our listeners outside of Kentucky in terms of one of the first things that you did, and I just appreciated what you said a moment ago about the credibility of the committee and as an institutionalist, the fact that you actually uh, cooperated, if you will, or even led an investigation of your predecessor of the same party in that same office, and you worked with a Democratic auditor in that in that uh, process to make sure that 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 this was all being looked into properly. And and, and unfortunately, the the person who was the, your predecessor went ended up going to prison as a result of. Those. But my point being is, is this is a fellow Republican. You took a lot of, of political hits for this as oh, a yeah. result. And and you're coming into this position. People might just be branding you as a partisan whatever. But the fact that you have a track record going into all this of rooting out waste, fraud, and abuse, regardless of the party. Well, I appreciate that, Joe, and that is true. And I actually used that as my campaign pitch when I was running for ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. The difference in the House and the Senate is we select our committee leaders by vote. By vote in front of the steering committee, and then the full House has to ratify that vote. The Senate goes by seniority. Seniority doesn't mean anything. I'm nowhere near the most senior member of the House Oversight Committee. But I use that as an example of, you know, I have experience in trying to root out waste, fraud, and abuse in a government agency, and I think that that will serve me well as as we move forward and focus on the entire federal government. That's Congressman Jamie Comer. You're on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings, along with Sean Souther, Joe Arnold, and Jared Crawford. Uh, Joe, thanks for, for bringing the conversation back to uh, Congressman Comer's Kentucky uh, political days. Jamie, I was hoping to, to get you to reflect on something for us. You, um, you've had an interesting journey. You got elected to the Kentucky State House at a very young age. Uh, you were you know been involved in politics and had political ambitions really your whole life and you ran for governor in 2015 and in a very very hard fought primary uh, you lost by 83 votes it was a it was a really intense campaign and at that moment um, I was wondering if you might take us back there because it's it's just interesting to me that from that day in May of 2015, to today, where we're talking to one of the three, four most important and influential Republicans in the country, I was just wondering if you if you've even had a chance to stop and reflect on that moment and how you felt on that night, and and then 
finding out where you are today. It, it, it's to me, it's one of the most fascinating journeys in in recent Kentucky political history. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Scott. It was uh, it was not a good night in, in 2015. You know, we uh, I felt uh, you know uh, wasn't happy with the outcome for a million reasons, and I won't get into that. But uh, you know that that's uh, you know the, things don't always go our way. Yeah, and obviously, I was very depressed and making plans to go back to the the private sector. And Ed Whitfield, uh, who was congressman, announced he was resigning from Congress for for a different reason and uh, people came to me I won the first congressional district by a huge margin and uh, I didn't know if I wanted to go through it again because that governor's race was so bad I mean the the Washington Post said it was the dirtiest race in the history of America at that time so you know we we talked about it and you know I'm blessed to have a lot of friends if you look at the the way the first congressional district is shaped, some would call it a gerrymander. And I want to remind you, it was gerrymandered when I was in high school. So it's always been gerrymandered. <laughs> but the, but the, the part around where I live from, you know, from Monroe County up to, to Casey County, that's called the old fifth district. You know, those people, I mean, they're, they're solid and they stuck with me and picked me up and said, you know, you got too much talent to, to walk away. We need you. And, and you know, I never stopped fighting. I got to Congress. I'd never planned on going to Washington, really didn't want to go to Washington. I just wanted to stay in Frankfurt, uh, got to Washington and, you know, I look around, there's 435 representatives. In other words, there are a dime a dozen. Yeah. And I thought, good grief, I'll never make it. I decided the first decision I made was the smartest decision. And I was talking to Jason Chaffetz about it when I went on Sean Hannity's show Friday night. I said uh, I was the only one in my class, 27 in my class. I was the only one that requested the oversight committee. Mm. So there was one slot on oversight committee, and I got it. And when I when I first got on the committee, you know, Chaffetz was chair, Trey Gowdy was vice chair. You had Meadows, you had Jordan, Ron DeSantis was on the committee. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Big name Republicans, and I thought, well, I'll never be chairman of the committee, but I'm going to learn a lot from these guys. And then you know, people started running for governor. And, everything else and i ended up uh with an opportunity to run i I was an underdog i ran and and won and you know i said when i got elected i said nobody thought i I could win uh you know don't have a legal background uh, but at the at the end of the day i said i'm going to do things differently we're going to be a credible committee we're not just going to chase sound bites we're not just going to be uh offended and outraged and 100% partisan, we're actually going to try to bring the committee back to what its purpose was, waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement. And we're going to only go after things if we have evidence. So it took some time. There were some people get a little frustrated in the beginning, but I think today, Scott, I'll knock on wood, that could change tomorrow, but I think today the entire conference is very supportive of what I've done and uh, you know, I think I'm going to have a great opportunity over the next two years to to play a major role on the on the national stage. Well, they've certainly put a lot of uh, faith and trust in you, and and right now you're you're one of the most visible Republicans in the House uh, uh, Republican Conference. You're making a lot of appearances on Fox News and and other media channels, and that's gonna that's gonna only uh, increase. You know, uh, I think your story, uh, Congressman Comer, is is a good one for people who are. In politics, or just generally in life, because we all have these low moments and bad right. things happen, and and uh, and you think, man, I just I'm so disappointed. But um, if you pick yourself up and you move forward, and you uh, and you and you look for other opportunities, you can certainly find them. And 
and you've done that. I did want to ask you a question about uh, the governor's race in Kentucky. You ran for governor mm-hmm. once, and now you're in Congress. Mm-hmm. We have one coming up in 2023. Kentucky has a Democrat governor, Andy Bashir, and we have a hot and heavy Republican primary. Now, most folks in your position might duck and cover, but you have actually endorsed in this primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're endorsing uh, former United Nations Ambassador Kelly Craft and her running mate, Max Wise. Uh, can you tell us why you chose to endorse and how you handicap the Republican primary for governor right now? Well, I think the primary is wide open. I think that the top two candidates, if, if you pressured me, I would say today, and things can change, obviously, would be Craft uh, and, and Daniel Cameron. But at the end of the day, I've known Kelly a long time. Max Wise is one of my closest friends in Kentucky politics. Um, Worked together with them to kind of marry that ticket. And I believe that Kelly's running for the right reasons. I I believe that, you know, I'm passionate about corruption and, and waste, fraud, and abuse. I believe we have a lot of that in state government. I believe, you know, the if you ever really broke it down and looked into the, the transportation cabinet and economic development cabinet, that there, there would be a lot of questions that people would have to answer for decisions made in the past. And I believe Kelly's the right person to go in there. She's not going to be compromised. And she's doing it for the right reasons, so I, I'm supporting her. But look, there are a lot of people running. I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have anything against very many of the the ones running, and I, but uh, certainly I'm I'm supporting her. And as you as you handicap the race, obviously, what a lot of Republicans and conservatives are wondering, especially after these midterms, where it was really kind of a pro incumbent environment uh, for for governor and other offices, is what is the blueprint to beat Andy Bashir? You've had a lot of political success, won a lot of tough mm-hmm. races. Uh, in your mind, sort of what's your 50,000-foot uh, strategic overview of how the Republicans should tackle Andy Bashir, who's got pretty good personal favorability mm-hmm. rating, but he's obviously saddled with a party affiliation that's really unpopular right now? Yeah, Bashir's got a double-edged sword. He, he's the incumbent, which is an advantage. He hasn't made any huge blunders. He hasn't had any major scandals. Uh, but I do believe he has a record to run on that's not in line with a lot of Kentucky values. Uh, when you look at some of the decisions made uh, during COVID, I think that Kentucky voters would rather have had a governor that approached COVID like Ron DeSantis as opposed to one that uh, approached COVID like Andy Bashir. So I think that the decisions that Andy made during COVID uh, w- will certainly be an issue that he'll have to answer to moving forward. Uh, but, you know, it's not going to be a slam dunk. And wh- whichever Republican emerges from the primary is going to have to take him very seriously. Uh, now, I'll say this, guy: I don't think Andy Bashir would have gotten anywhere near uh, the victory line in the last election were it not for running against an incredibly unpopular Matt Bevin. So, you know, it just depends on the Republican nominee. You know, if Matt Bevin runs, I wouldn't count Matt Bevin out of winning the primary, but I, I wouldn't bet a lot on Matt Bevin in the in the fall. So I think that, you know, Andy Bashir's got adva- the advantage of incumbency, but certainly being a Democrat in Kentucky will not help him. And uh, even with even if Republicans make mistakes and aren't popular after after six or seven months in, in Washington in the House of Representatives, the, the Kentucky voters are still going to look at the, the values and the policy the Republicans are pushing versus the values and the policy the Democrats are pushing in Washington. So he's not going to get any assist from Washington Democrats. 
Yeah. And uh, I, I, it's, it's going to be a, a tough race, but I, I think the Republican will prevail. What do the midterms tell you about uh, not only Kentucky, but also back to your, your role in oversight and reform? Does any of that factor into what kind of will of the American people or will of the Kentuckians that you what you choose to do? Well, you know, there were things we learned in the midterm election that I don't think everyone was was 100 percent certain of. You know, candidates matter, Joe. We we won. I'm very happy we won. I'm chairman of the most high profile committee in, in Congress. I'm going to have subpoena power. So, you know, that, life's good on my end. But, you know, we probably should have done a lot better. Uh, we had some candidates that were probably too far to the right in some of these states. You know, we, we, we won in states where we normally don't win, New York, California. We won there with moderate candidates. So I'm certainly not advocating for, for moderate candidates, but I, I do think you can get too far uh, to the right sometimes in, in certain districts. You can in, in most of the Kentucky districts. and Districts, uh, you know, in my Guthrie, Massey's and Hal Rogers, you can be to the right of anybody in, in Congress and be very popular in the district. But, you know, in, in a lot of these suburban districts, you, you've got to have more more moderate candidates. I think we saw in Kentucky on the amendment number two, I, I think that even though Kentucky's a pro-life state, they still want exceptions for rape, incest, or health of the mother. I, I kept hearing that all over the state. So, you know, th- there are things that you learn from election. And hopefully Republicans moving forward can take what they've learned and, and apply them to uh, future elections. Now you, and just one more double back on the, 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 your role now in uh, oversight and reform chair. Does the midterm affect you at all in terms of the American people's, uh, you know, to, to, what, to what level of inv- more investigations do they want? Well, I think, again, as I said in the beginning, we're going to have to restore credibility uh, people are skeptical, even on the right of these investigations. You know, they're like, well, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to be done. Uh, nothing ever happens. Nothing ever gets done. And, you know, we, we've just got to try to focus, uh, have a have a specific focus. A lot of these congressional investigations, you open up a can of worms and you start going down rabbit holes and everything else. I mean, if we went through everything in the laptop that needed to be investigated, we would be on the laptop for a long time. But we're on Joe Biden. And we're specifically requesting the the bank records. And I think that will uh, be able to summarize the investigation pretty quickly. Was Joe Biden benefiting directly from his family's shady business dealing? So that's that's where we're focused. It's not really going to change my my priorities. I I know that I'll have members of my committee that will want to look into every conspiracy theory on the the far right uh, end of the medium spectrum. Uh, you know, I've told these members we'll look into anything, but we're not. I'm, I'm not going to talk about it. It's not going to be on oversight stationery unless we have evidence. So that's how we're going to weed out some of that stuff. Well, Congressman, you uh, one milestone that we achieved this year in Kentucky politics was flipping voter registration to being a dominant yeah. Republican for the first time in our history. Uh, and I know you're a student of Kentucky political history, and uh, referencing the old fifth is not lost on lots of us Republicans mm-hmm. who, who study such things. Can you talk about the change, particularly in, in rural and West Kentucky? Uh, and you represent uh, what was once hailed as the Rock of Gibraltar. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that for, for our people in, in Kentucky? And why do you think that ultimately voters uh, voted with their feet to, to leave the, the Democrat Party? 
Well, you know, the world changed since 2015. Go back to 2015. There were there were 85,000 more Democrats than Republicans in the first congressional district. Today, there are more Republicans than Democrats in the first congressional district. That's just been eight years. So, you know, unfortunately, if you're a Democrat, you can't vote in the Republican primary. And a lot of those conservative Democrats changed after 2015. A lot of them changed after uh, Obama, after Trump. And, and I think that you know, it's completely changed the landscape of these primaries now. So, uh, you know, what we have to worry about in primaries is not electing a Republican that can't win in November. And, and I, you know, that would be my concern if, if Matt Bevin were the nominee or, or I can't even think of his name, the lawyer from Northern Kentucky or, or whatever, you know, you can be too far out there and, and spook moderate voters off and, and and i think that that happened in some of our house races and certainly it happened in a lot of the senate races yeah i was talking to a uh old republican friend uh, the other night who said his interpretation of the midterm was i think voters just want quote normal people that have good character <laughs> right. so, so, so all, all he said uh before we get to the lightning round congressman comer i did want to give you a chance to Opine. It's been about a year since the tornadoes ripped through mm-hmm. Kentucky. A lot of that devastation happened in your district and, and near your district there in Bowling Green. Was wondering if you uh, wanted to offer a quick update on on how folks in Mayfield and Dawson Springs and other communities that you've spent a lot of time in uh, since those tornadoes, how they're doing, and and um, what do you think the the federal government needs to do more of here a, a year out? Well, the federal government came in and paid for the debris removal at the very beginning, 100%, and that was a big uh, big assist to those local communities. As you know, being from Dawson Springs, Scott, uh, that community never could have avoided the debris removal. Yeah, uh, I think the federal government has, has stepped up in a big way. There are people that are never going to be satisfied because a lot of people don't understand what the role of the federal government is after a national disaster. Uh, from a rebuilding standpoint, I'm encouraged that Dawson Springs High School and Mayfield High School, are, are, you know, they kept their, their numbers. Unlike something like uh, after Katrina, a big part of New Orleans moved away. Uh, it looks like the population stayed. People love those rural communities in West Kentucky, and, and they're going to stay there. The rebuilding process, unfortunately, is going to take a long time. We just didn't have the builders. We didn't have the building materials. But I do think that we're making progress. We've just got a long way to go, especially in Mayfield and Dawson Springs. Yeah, boy, if you uh, uh, if you never saw the pictures or, or visited, it was uh, still – I still don't quite believe what I saw when I, uh, I went down to right. visit uh, right after it happened. Well, Jamie, you've been a, a terrific guest on the pod. We do have a tradition of the guests uh, doing a little lightning round, so uh, we're going to put you through it uh, and, right. uh, and uh, look forward to some – some good answers. Number one, what is the favorite Christmas movie in the Comer household this time of the year? <laughs> it's the it's a Chevy Chase movie. We watch it the whole time. I, I can't think of it. That and L. Yeah, Christmas Vacation and uh, yeah, and Christmas L. Vacation and L. All okay. right, very good. Number two, who is a politician that you would consider to have been a mentor to you, or that someone you've looked up to or tried to model yourself after in your career? Well, uh, on the state level, for better or worse, David Williams is someone I learned a lot from <laughs> in the Kentucky General Assembly. You know, on on the federal level, if you look at uh, uh, you know p- politicians, I always I always like George W. Bush, yeah. the, who you worked for. I like his style, and uh, didn't always agree with his policy, but I, I like his style. So those would be those would be two I looked up to. Certainly, I've tried to learn from McConnell a lot over the years as well. Uh, a lot of folks uh, may know you're an avid golfer and have seen a lot of Kentucky golf courses. What's your favorite uh, uh, course in the state? 
Well, my favorite course in the state would be probably the Frankfurt Country Club. All right, very good. Oh, you had a follow up on this, Sean. Yeah, who's the who's the best golfer? You, Will Harness, or John Hughes? Will Harness. I can beat really? Hughes. I can't beat Will Harness. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, Will, Harness had a had a Division One scholarship offer. He's a pretty good golfer. Yeah, he is. Oh, he is. He'll enjoy that. All right. Uh, you've been in Washington now a few years. Who's a Democrat that you've met in Washington that you have unexpectedly become friends with? Joe Cunningham from uh, your part of the state, Scott. He was a member in Charleston, South Carolina area. Unfortunately, he got beat. Uh, but was replaced by a great Republican, Nancy Mace, who's on my oversight committee. Yep. Since you mentioned Ron DeSantis and serving on the committee with him, give me three adjectives to describe Ron DeSantis. He was, he was an introvert. He was very smart and very prepared. I don't know. Uh, introvert, smart, prepared. I don't know if those are adjectives Excellent. or not. But yeah. What do you, how do you handicap his chances? I mean, I'm just going to – I mean, I, I got to tell you, since uh, – since the election and everything that's happened, and and uh, obviously it's a whole show we could unpack there, but it strikes me he's on a bit of a rocket ship right now. He is on a rocket ship. You know, very very seldom does the front runner uh, retain that status all the way through and become the nominee, but he's certainly a force to deal with, as is the former president. Yeah, uh, you represent Fancy Farm, Kentucky. It's in the first congressional district. You have spoken at the picnic a number of times, and I know uh, you love it. What is one of your uh, favorite Fancy Farm? memories from over the years well certainly love the old politicians larry forgy uh paul Patton, jim bunning they were three of the the best speakers back when you didn't offend the media you know when you could get up there and uh, in good <laughs> you know in good sport and good faith and uh you know kind of discredit your opponent in a in a friendly sportsmanlike manner uh, but these days, Scott, they get offended. You know, every time I, I say something, it, it offends these new reporters with the Courier Journal and the Election Herald. It's really unfortunate. Yeah, you had a you had a good one this last time around. The Hunter Biden art contest was uh... right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Uh, you were agriculture commissioner of Kentucky, which we mentioned, uh, which has some oversight over the Kentucky State Fair. When you were ag commissioner, mm-hmm. what was your favorite area of the state fair that you always enjoyed visiting? I enjoyed the livestock shows. I grew up as a kid in Monroe County. A big uh, thing I look forward to every year, we would go to the state fair and stay three or four nights up there and, and show cattle. So I like the, the cattle show part, the beef cattle show part. All right, awesome. Uh, let me go back to Washington, D.C. What would you say is the worst decision Joe Biden has made as president? I think cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Because uh, we, we've got to enhance our energy policy in America. That was something he did that he really didn't have the authority to do uh, that I think will will set us back for a long time in America. Uh, simple question. You don't have to name names. But will Republicans win back the White House in 2024? Yes. Final question for me, and you guys, if you have any more, here's your chance. But I want to know, will Jamie Comer ever run for statewide office again in Kentucky? I don't know. Never's a, a long time, but I'm pretty happy in, in Washington right now. You can't beat uh, where I am in Washington, Scott, for just being there less than six years. Yeah, you got they got term limits on those committee chairmanships, you know, though. They do. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you predict that Republicans will take back the governor's office in Kentucky? I predict they will. Okay, so since you're a student of politics and a, and a handicapper, by what margin? Probably four or five points. Excellent. All right. Gentlemen, 
Thank you for your questions. For Jamie Comer, you've been great. Tremendous guest. You answered answered every question head on. You evaded nothing uh, other than a little bit on the way you run for statewide office, which I predict you will. We'll see. uh. (laughs) I'm just waiting to get killed for answering David Williams as my political. (laughs) (laughs) The staff's calling damage control. Scott will give you his favorite. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I did learn a lot from David. You know, he's one of the most talented uh, political minds I've ever been around. I tell you what, I, the, he, he said something to me once. Your which, favorite quote? I my, always say it. I say it on TV all the time. I, I tell people this all the time, but he, he was the first person I ever heard say, "Instant coffee ruined the world." And and you know, and that was a long time ago that he said that. And every day something happens in this world, and I say, you know, David was right. Instant coffee ruined the world. People just can't be patient enough to let stuff develop. But yeah, he was. Uh, he was something else in Frankfurt. I tell you, there's, there's, there's a one of a kind. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for coming on with us. We really appreciate all the answers, and uh, and uh, we look forward to having you back after you uh, get to the bottom of some of these really important investigations you're about to do in Congress. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks. All right. Thank you. thank you. And you've been listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. For Sean Southern, Joe Arnold, Jared Crawford, I'm Scott. We'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to tweet, post on Facebook, share it with your friends, give us the ratings and reviews. And we'll keep churning out Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.